0: If you want to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 1, if you're not already there. Father, we come to your word knowing that it's true and knowing that it's living and active and powerful. Knowing that uh, what, what we read here today was really specifically given for your church. It was given to us. So we ask that you would open our ears and open our eyes, grant us faith, help us to understand, help us to embrace what we see, and to find hope in these words. We thank you in Jesus' holy name, amen. Last week we, we started looking at the book of Revelation That message is online at the at uh, onehopefellowship.org. You can also search for it on YouTube and, or on uh, iTunes. You can even subscribe there to the podcast and get these as they come. John continues. Um, now in, in kind of a formal introduction, he, he did a prologue and a preface and a greeting before, starting in verse 9. and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So John begins by giving us a, a picture of himself. He doesn't emphasize his office as an apostle. He doesn't say John, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, like Paul does many times. He doesn't even say John, an elder, as he does in 2 John and and 3 John. He says, John, your brother. He's he's receiving this as a believer. He's standing in our place, uh, almost representing us as he receives this. He... um, he, he shares some things in common with us. He calls himself his, our partner. Um, our partner there basically means that we're, we're sharing something with him equally. That's the sense of the word. What is it that we share? That it's important that we understand this. He's our partner in tribulation. He's our partner in the kingdom. <coughs> and he's our partner in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Let's see, where am I at? Um, Jesus made a promise to us in John 16. It's a promise a lot of people don't want to claim. These things I have said to you, he says that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation. That's the promise. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, just... Kind of stepping in just thinking about this for a moment, not only is it amazing how many people don't want to claim this promise, but their whole doctrine's built around saying that Jesus didn't mean this, that we're not supposed to have tribulation, that if we have tribulation, somehow Satan has taken over. He promises that we're going to have tribulation. He knows that we're going to have tribulation. And John says, look, this is this is what we've got. He wasn't spared because he was an apostle. In fact, he suffered more probably because he was an apostle. He says, I I was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So on account of teaching the scriptures and preaching the gospel, John's been imprisoned. He wasn't spared because of being an apostle. Rather, he shares in the tribulation that we all have. There's a certain amount of suffering and tribulation that we endure simply because this is a a fallen world. It's a dead world. But there's also tribulation that comes specifically against the people of God. We have a spiritual enemy who is seeking our destruction all the time. He has people in the world who are seeking our destruction all the time. He is making constant attempts to infiltrate the church. The church from the very beginning has had to deal with false teachers and false doctrines. It's a nonstop issue. We'll even see as we move into the next seven weeks, as we look at the seven churches, the issues that they faced including uh, include false teachers and false doctrines and legalism and, and uh, all sorts of issues that bring about suffering. And John says, I'm right there with you. I am right there with you. So as we go through what we go through, as we look at whatever is going to happen in our election, as we look at whatever happens in the United States in the decade to come, uh, in in the, the lives of my children and my grandchildren, we know that John has been there. We know that he's experienced this. And he says, you're going to have tribulation. I'm there with you. We all suffered it. He also shares in the kingdom of God with us. Every Christian is a citizen of the kingdom of God. That kingdom is not about power and wealth and geography. Paul says it's about righteousness and peace and joy. The kingdom of God is about righteousness. We can forget that. But it's about peace, too. It's about the peace we have with God through what Jesus did. And it's about the joy we have because of the word of God and because of the spirit of God filling us with with joy as we serve the Lord. Now, Keep this in mind now. We've got this picture where John says, look, I'm a partner with you in trouble. The Savior said in this world you're going to have trouble, and we've got it. We're experiencing it. I'm experiencing it right now, he says. We're also partners in a kingdom that cannot be overthrown. The kingdom of God's beloved Son. Paul says... Uh, where am I going here? No, never mind. All right. I hate it when the... Cross-references aren't what I think they're going to be. Um, It's the kingdom of God's beloved son, which is closed to the wicked. It's only entered by the effectual call of God. It's a kingdom that is opposed by Satan in the world. But Hebrews 12.28 says that kingdom will never be overthrown. You're, You're living in a world where there's tribulation. You're a citizen of a kingdom that can't be overthrown. So what do we do with that? What do we do with our tribulation and the promise that we're in a kingdom that can't be overthrown? Well, John says we have patient endurance. Literally, it's the word long-suffering. Long-suffering. We endure. Now, long-suffering doesn't mean suffering for a long time. That's not the sense of the word. Long-suffering means standing in a place and being unmoved. Nothing can move you out of that place. It doesn't matter what you face. Long-suffering, endurance, perseverance is going to hold your feet there. That's, that's where the, the Colossians reference came in. I got ahead of myself. Paul prays for the Colossians, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. And, and what's the result of being strengthened with the power of God according to His glorious might? Having endurance and patience with joy. The power of God is best expressed in the people of God when we endure in faith in spite of the suffering around us and the suffering that we go through. The power of God is best seen. It's best manifested when the people of God continue to believe in Him regardless of their circumstances. That's where power is. So John's suffering and hope and endurance, remember, are not theoretical. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos, He's been banished there for the preaching of the gospel. He is a, uh, a, a recipient of the hatred that was poured out by the Emperor Domitian against the early church. There were uh, two major persecutions in the first century. The first one was in the in the mid sixties with Nero. After Nero was was uh, executed and replaced, things. Evened out for a little bit of time, but about thirty years later, in the early and mid nineties, the Emperor Domitian really went after Christians in in a hard way. There was a huge amount of suffering, huge amount of of martyrdom. Why? Well, John says it was because he was preaching the word, he was preaching the gospel. Why is that a danger? He's he's not organizing riots. He's he's not uh, saying. Uh, he's not calling for an overthrow of, of the Roman government. He's simply preaching the simple message. Why is the hatred there? Well, I think that the hatred is there because the Word of God says there's one God. And that one God rules over all the earth. He'll bring judgment against the wicked. He'll save those with whom He is pleased to save only on His terms. And when He saves, He actually brings transformation. Transformation. He changes people, and he does what all the powers of Roman, Roman government could not do. He does what all the powers of the North Korean government could not do, or the government in Laos, or the American government and the American military. He actually changes people so that their behavior changes, not because they've gone through a program, not because they've learned some technique, but because they're becoming new on the inside. He actually transforms sinners into saints. He does what no government on earth can do. And then he says, I'll hold those, those governments accountable. Now, the church wasn't going to hold those governments accountable, but they are proclaiming a message that said, ignore Caesar, he's not your Lord. And so that was, the, that, that was the end, and that's when persecution really came in a serious way. We're going to see that happening now. We're going to see that happening now. There's already a move. I think it's uh, it's either in Massachusetts or New Hampshire where churches are, are going to be banned. Starting October 1st, I think, churches are going to be banned from saying homosexuality is a sin. It's not going to stand before the Supreme Court, I don't think. But eventually we're going to get to that point where they're going to figure out how to do it. And hopefully nobody's listening to this tape because I'll tell you exactly how they can do it. First of all, they define preaching that homosexuality is a sin, as a hate crime. And then they say no hate crime can be recognized, no group promoting hate crimes can be, can be recognized as a legitimate church. There will be a lot of churches that agree with homosexuality that are very happy with it that agree with the various sins and the perversions of our, of our society. If we simply stand up and say uh, what, what John says in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. If we say that, Jesus is coming back with judgment and with salvation, and, and we plead with you, we beg you as the Apostle Paul did, be reconciled to God. That's, that's going to be hate speech. It's actually very easy. The time is coming when we're going to face those very things. Well, John on the first day of the week says that he was in the Spirit. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to these recipient churches. John finds himself caught up in the Spirit. Now, this is one of the reasons that we have to be aware that Revelation contains... Excuse me, 350 quotations and allusions to the Old Testament, and far more images, things where, where that come out because John was so saturated with the Old Testament scriptures. When, she, <coughs> excuse me, I'll get the one without lipstick. Not my shade. Um, John's making reference back to Ezekiel here. Ezekiel says eight or ten times, I was lifted up by the Spirit. I was caught up in the Spirit and taken here for a vision. I was caught up in the Spirit and taken there for a vision. John doesn't say he was in the Spirit in this way all the time. He doesn't give us any instructions as how to be in the Spirit. He simply makes a statement of fact and says, The Spirit came upon me and gives him this instruction To write a letter and send it to these seven churches. Now, I want to talk about two things this morning that are related to the passage and related to the whole book, but because this is the first time we're coming upon them, we need to lay the foundation. And I'll repeat some of these things as we move on through the book, but the first thing I want to deal with is the issue of numbers in the Bible. There is a uh, a philosophical approach to the Bible called numerology that says that every number in the Bible has a specific meaning all the time. And that's not biblically sound. It doesn't make sense. Not every number is significant all the time. But Scripture is clear that certain numbers, especially when they're repeated, have significance. We, we Just a few weeks ago, we talked about the number 40, 40 days, 40 years. We talked about how often that comes up and and how it's used in a specific way. The book of Revelation, the number seven, appears more than 50 times. It, it appears in... Uh, uh, it, it says that there are seven churches, seven spirits, golden lampstands, seven stars, seven torches of fire, seals, horns, trumpets, angels, thunders, heads, crowns, plagues, bowls, mountains, kings... Seven, 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 seven. Seven represents completion. It represents fullness. That's why there's seven days in a week. There, don't, there, there don't, don't have to be seven days in a week. Really don't have to be seven days in a week. There's nothing that requires that. But God created everything in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And then the next day becomes the first day. There's seven days, and it just represents that idea that something has been brought to completion. So seven churches, these are literal churches. These are real cities. The issues that they face that are described in the next two chapters are real issues. Uh, There's even some uh, cultural and archaeological statements that are made that, that hopefully we'll be able to talk about. But beyond that, the seven here really says this is being written to the entire church throughout time. This is being given to all the church. Not that the church exists in seven different periods of time or over the last 2,000 years or until the end the the church looks seven different ways that's really a short-sighted way of understanding the church we might say that that the church in the United States now is approaching uh, the church of Laodicea which was almost comatose just in a terrible shape But there are churches in in Africa and in Asia that are like the church in Smyrna, which is right on faithful and suffering greatly. No rebuke for those churches. I think the reality is is that at any given time, in any given area, you're going to find uh, these seven and a mixture of these seven churches. You're going to find churches like the church at Ephesus that was doctrinally correct and was on on the lookout for false doctrine, but had forgotten its love for the Lord Jesus. You're going to find the church in Smyrna that was suffering. You're going to find those other representations there. So what Jesus gives us uh, in those seven letters is is meant for us today. It's not simply something that's being said to them, and we need to be careful to think about that. So seven represents fullness or completion. What's interesting is John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And we already saw in verse 20 that the lampstands are the seven churches. So let, let me point out a couple of things here. First of all, a lampstand is not a lamp. A lampstand is a, like a menorah. And, and there are cups or bowls, or sometimes there was a ledge with holes punched in it, and they used oil lamps. And there might, be, there might be seven or ten, there were seven in the menorah in the temple, but there might be 20 or 30 or 40 oil lamps sitting on this lampstand. So the church in Ephesus is a lampstand. Now Jesus says, we are the light of the world. Nobody lights a lamp." and then puts it under a bushel basket, they light a lamp and they they put it out in the open so it can give light to everybody in the house. So here's, here's what I think is going on. I think that even in this time, there's a recognition that within the city of Ephesus, within the church in Ephesus, there are going to be multiple lamps, plural, on that single lamp stand. All of the believers in Ephesus aren't necessarily gathering in one place. So he writes to those who are are in, in a position of leadership within those cities. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. We've got this revelation of Jesus, and it's a vision. It's the first vision that we encounter in in the book of Revelation. Now, Part of it doesn't doesn't look like a vision because he's wearing a robe. We would expect uh, within the culture of that day a robe is normal. He's wearing a golden sash. Again, not not abnormal. The Levitical priests were to wear a sash that that was tied. Uh, they were to wear robes, but uh, and and even the white hair it isn't outlandish you could think to take that literally but his eyes are like a flame of fire his feet are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace the, the sense of the language there is molten metal that's been cleansed uh, at the time i'm not sure what they do today justin would know actually what they do today you were new core for a week or two but at the time they would take uh, molten metal uh, it could be bronze could be copper it could be brass The word is not distinctive there. They would melt it, and the impurities would rise to the top, and they'd scrape off the impurities. They'd keep melting it, and they'd keep scraping off the impurities until the surface of it was like glass. Now, I got to tour Nucor one time, and I I got to see something of the furnace area, which is brilliant white. I never got to see a pour, but I know that molten metal is, is... glaring painfully bright yellow orange red it's just this this amazing substance and that's what we're being told we're not being told that Jesus feet are like a bronze statue that's been polished we're not being told he's got a good tan we're being told that his feet are are, are flaming and are, and are are looking in this pure purified molten metal we see that his voice was like the roar of many waters. That's a reference, by the way, back to Joel chapter 3. In his right hand he holds seven stars. In his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. His face is like the sun shining in full, in full strength. This is not seeing Jesus as he is after his resurrection. This is a vision of who Jesus is. Now how do we understand visions in, in this sense? What do we do when we encounter visions in the book of Revelation or in, in Scripture as a whole? Let me give you the, the two things that I do or three things that I do is, as, I, as I recognize them, unpack them, try to understand them, and then, and then teach them. The, the first thing is to recognize that while not every element of a vision is literally true or is literally literal, it's not literally literal, Every element of a vision points to some literal reality. So Jesus is dressed in a robe. He's got the sash, white hair. Sure, that could be just literally true. But the eyes is a flame of fire, feet of molten metal, uh, holding stars in his right hand. There's a truth behind those elements. In order for us to understand that, we've got to go back to the word of God. That's the, the second point here. We've got to go back to the Word of God. It doesn't matter what you think the robe represents. It doesn't matter what I think the robe represents. You go into any different culture and ask, what does a robe mean to you? And you're going to get different answers. The Lord didn't intend for us to interpret the Scripture according to our culture. He intended for it to interpret the Scripture according to the Scripture. The Scripture becomes our culture. You ask me what a robe means to me, and it means bedtime. That's what a robe means. But a robe for John's time as he was writing to these people and, and as we know the uh, uh, what he sees throughout this book is saturated with Old Testament truth. We know that the robe points to priests and kings. A long robe pro- points to priests and kings. The sash points to the priests. In Leviticus 16.4 it talks about uh, tying the sash around the waist of the priest. So we've got to go back to the Old Testament scriptures to see what's being said. Sometimes the New Testament scriptures, the sword coming out of his mouth, two-edged sword in his mouth is a reference to Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Third thing then that we need to do, we, we recognize that while not every element of a vision is to be taken literally, every element represents literal truth. We have to go back to the Old Testament to see what is going on, and sometimes the New Testament, but mainly the Old Testament passages. And third, we have to understand that the elements of a vision work together. They work together. Um, if I if I got out ingredients, if I got out a few cups of flour and baking powder and two or three eggs and some vanilla and uh, some salt, um and other stuff to make a cake. I don't know how to make a cake. If I got out all those ingredients and just put them up here and started eating the ingredients, am I eating a cake? No. I mean, I could just be up here spooning down flour. But it's, it's not a cake. What do you have to do to have a cake? You have to take all of those appropriate ingredients. They're all right. They're, they're the right ingredients. You have to mix them. The only way to really understand what's going on in a vision is once we've identified those elements and sought to understand them from a, from a biblical point of view, then we have to join them together into a single piece. We've got to kind of bake the cake. So what is it that we, that we see in John's description of Jesus here? We see that John sees the Lord Jesus as Daniel saw the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7 and the, the figure, the royal figure in Daniel chapter 10. We see that Jesus is dressed in garments that are priestly and royal. That comes from a, of, of Exodus twenty-eight four, Leviticus 16.4, 1 Chronicles 15.27. We see that, that uh, he's filled with dignity and wisdom. White hair in the Old Testament is like white hair today. It points to dignity and wisdom and, and experience. We see that he knows all things and he judges with authority. That's the eyes like flame of fire. Eyes represent seeing. Uh, in uh, in Zechariah, the Holy Spirit is called the seven eyes. The spirit with seven eyes. Because he sees and he knows all things. The fire always speaks of judgment and purity. Uh, he is pure and righteous. The feet glowing like metal that's been refined speaks of his righteousness. His voice is like the roar of many waters. So he's bringing judgment for the wicked and rescue for the righteous. Looking back to Joel chapter 3. He's in control of the churches. The seven stars are in his hand, and he's in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. We see he he delivers to us the very word of God. He's not under the word of God. He is the word of God. So John sees Jesus Christ. Let me bring it down even more. John sees Jesus Christ, our high priest, and the king of kings filled with power, holiness, and glory. Got that? What does John do now? When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. He fell at his feet like he was dead, overwhelmed by what he saw, as Daniel was in Daniel chapter 10. Jan- Daniel sees this magnificent figure in Daniel 10. He describes him using many of the same words and terms and ideas here. And Daniel just hits his face. He's, he's gone. He's gone just as the figure did excuse me just as the figure did in daniel 10 jesus leans over lays his right hand on on john and says don't be afraid why does john fall over because he's never seen this before this isn't a common experience john's never seen this before if john had seen this before he would have turned around and said oh lord hi i'm almost done be right with you But instead, he sees something that he's never seen. Now, he'd seen Jesus before his crucifixion, obviously. He'd seen Jesus hanging on the cross. He'd seen Jesus when he was dead on the cross. He saw Jesus resurrected. We can even say he saw Jesus glorified in the the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. But he's never seen Jesus this way. Wednesday night, one of the... The, the ladies in our study in uh, Creighton said he sees what's inside and I said, yeah that's exactly right. Jesus takes his characteristics and he makes he gives them physical form so that John can comprehend those physical care those, those spiritual inner characteristics in that authority in that role Jesus, identifies himself as as the Savior. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. So Jesus is God in human flesh. I am the first and the last and the living one. Jesus is the one who died for us and was raised from the dead. It's right there. Jesus is the one not only in control of life because he died and rose again, but in control of death and Hades itself. It's so important for John to know as he's living in exile, having been made the object of persecution, it's so important for the church to know that as, as suffering comes, as struggle comes, the Lord Jesus is God in human flesh, the Savior who died for us and was raised from the dead, and the one who actually controls death and Hades. The worse the suffering is, the more we need to know that our God is in control of, of everything. It's not that Satan is in control of death and Hades. Jesus has the keys. Satan doesn't have those. Jesus uses Satan... As an instrument, he uses Satan surgically, as he does in the book of Job. You look, Read the book of Job and see how, how the Lord God uses Satan against his will. He tempts him. He tempts Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? Satan says, well, yeah, he only worships you because you've made him rich. And God says, take away everything he's got. God knows what Job's going to do because God's going to sustain him. And in the process of that book, Job learns that God is everything. He is everything in everything. Job is nothing. Lord, you're the great one. You're the creator. You're the one who can do all things. You're the one who knows all things. In that authority, John is told again, write what you have seen. And then Jesus explains the stars and the (coughs) lampstands. So... Where are we at for time? Oh, we're doing good. It's only been 35 minutes. All right. There are three significant things that we see here. We see Jesus' relationship to His church. He's in the midst of those lampstands. He's in the midst of those lampstands. He is with His church. He is with His people. He is with His people. There's no need to invite Him. There's no need to invite Him. Jesus says in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in My name, there I am among them. I've been in churches where, where people would step up to a microphone at some point and invite God like that's necessary. He's there. He beat us there. He was there before we got there. We don't have to invite him. He invites us. We don't need to invite him anywhere. He's keeping that promise right at the minute John sees him. John sees him in the midst of these lampstands. Now, the church in Smyrna, it's the shortest letter in there, Jesus says to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. You're going to suffer a little while. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. It's a faithful church and they're they're suffering intensely and it's going to get worse for a brief time. To the church of of Sardis though and the church of Laodicea, to Sardis he says, you have the reputation of, of being alive but you're dead. He says to the church in Laodicea, um, I'm going to spit you out of your mouth. You say, I'm rich, prosperous, I have need nothing. You don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And John doesn't say Jesus is closer to the church in Smyrna than he was to the church in Laodicea. He's among the seven lampstands. Whether they're suffering or content, whether they're... Wonderfully, beautifully faithful or comatose. He is among his people. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to fear him not being with us. We also see Jesus' ongoing ministry. That's in that picture of him as a as a priest and as a king. There's a, a wonderful statement in Hebrews 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. There's, there's five places here where it tells us why we don't need a human priest. He holds his priesthood permanently. He'll never die. He doesn't need a, he doesn't need a replacement. He doesn't need a successor. He continues forever. He's eternal in this. Notice, he is able to save. He is able to save. I'm not able to save. I can't save me. I certainly can't save you. I'm not able. You're not able. You're not able. She's not able. But he is able to save. If he's able to save, we don't need anybody else. He's able to get it done. He's able to save to the uttermost, which means he leaves nothing undone. He leaves nothing undone. My, my brother drives a, a milk truck in California. He's not a milkman. I don't mean that. He goes to dairies and he picks up raw milk and then takes it to the co op. And, uh, I think he told me that they clean the truck every 24 hours. They don't clean it every load, but they clean it every, once a day, they steam clean the inside of this truck. And the, the milk is one of the more difficult things to transport because it's it's, uh, it, it's uh, organic, um, and it, this is just raw, I'm sure that they filter it, but this is just raw milk, it's not pasteurized or anything. You want to minimize surfaces inside the tank that could allow bacteria to grow. So it's just a big balloon where other trucks, oil trucks and gas trucks, will have compartments and baffles to keep sloshing around to a minimum. They don't do that with a milk truck. But can you imagine having to climb down? There there are two guys, he said, who climbed down into that wearing masks and using steam, and they have to clean out every single inch of that. They have to get every bit of of the previous day's milk out of there before they allow any more to be loaded in. Can you imagine having to do that? Now, do you think your heart and your soul is this really smooth, perfect, perfectly shaped balloon? Or or is, is it filled with nooks and crannies and cracks and crevices? Those little places where sin can hide and can conceal itself. And he's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to get into every little crevice and crack of your heart and deal with the sin that's there. He's not going to step by and go, oh, I missed that. Look at that. I didn't even see that crack. We don't have to worry about it. He's able to save to the uttermost, and He always lives to make intercession for them. So we don't need any other priest. He stands in His robe. He stands with His sash. He's interceding for us right now. He is interceding for you right now. He's laying your name before the Father right now if you've put your faith in Him. And He won't stop until you're home. He won't stop until you're home. Why am I so confident in the security of the believer? Because I'm confident in the Savior. I'm not confident in me. If I have to hang on to Him, I'm done. I don't have to hang on to Him. He hangs on to me. He's praying me home right now. He's praying you home right now. Finally, we see Jesus' authority in the church. He's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Those stars are the angels of the churches. The uh, It's really interesting. When, when you look at, at a commentary on Matthew, say, and uh, the feeding of the 5,000. You might find two or three different theories about what happened there. Most of them are going to acknowledge that a miracle took place, but there are liberal commentaries that will say, well, Jesus' example of generosity prompted other people to be generous. Um, You look at an Old Testament commentary on Jonah. We just looked at Jonah. Jonah and uh, the great fish that God prepared. The commentaries will have two or three maybe different ideas about what that fish might have been or how all of that worked or what it signified. There are probably a dozen different guesses at what the angel is, the angels of the churches. I think the best guess is the simplest guess. We don't take the word angel as a spiritual term. We take it as its men in the original language, which is messenger. These are the messengers of the churches. These are the pastors and the elders of the churches. Why would I say that? Because John is supposed to write a physical letter. Is he supposed to mail the physical letter to heaven where the angel is? There, there are others. i got to tell you, my favorite theory is that every church has a spiritual reflection in the heavenly places, and that's the angel. Like, where do you even get that stuff? Anyway, he holds, he holds me in his hand. He holds the leaders of the church and the elders of the church in his hand. He held his apostles while they were alive. He holds them in his hand. One day I will give an account to the Lord for what I taught and how I taught. Whether I was faithful in, in teaching the word. That's the primary issue that I'm, I'm called to do. One of these days you're going to be held accountable, as I will be accountable for what we were taught. For whether we believed it, for whether we took it seriously, for whether we acted upon it, for whether we repented when it was appropriate, for whether we trusted when it, when it was appropriate. Uh, being held accountable is not the same as saying, we go to hell if we don't meet some minimum standard. Every sin has been laid upon the Lord Jesus, but there's an accountability there. But Jesus is saying, look, this is my authority. I hold your leadership in my hand. I walk in your midst. You're not in my midst. I'm in your midst. I'm walking around and seeing and inspecting and evaluating. His authority is represented by His Word, which we have in our hands, the sword that comes from His mouth. It's represented by His glory, which is the very glory of God. So as we're going to see in the next seven weeks, we're going to look at these seven churches one week at a time. <coughs> so those, those messages won't take 50 minutes. We're going to see that his authority is absolute, that his ability to save is absolute. We're going to see that he calls his people to faithfulness in the midst of suffering and tribulation, that what he calls them to do is to love him and trust him. He wants us to be biblically accurate, he makes that clear, he wants us to be faithful, he wants us to be righteous in our behavior, but it comes down to do we trust him and do we hang on to that faith in the midst of the the suffering that we go through. So if you don't take anything else away today, I, I do want you to take this. The book of Revelation doesn't begin in the future. There's a lot in the, in the book of Revelation that deals with the future, obviously. But the book of Revelation begins today. It begins with, with my relationship with Christ and Justin's relationship with Christ and Ellen's relationship with Christ. It begins with whether or not we will stand in faith on what he has said and what he has promised to do, and whether or not we will not be moved when challenges come, when suffering comes, when tribulation comes. That's when it begins, when, when John writes the, these seven letters to these churches, they're, they're 2,000 years, 1,900 years before those events. Whenever those events take place, they're 1,900 years before we are. We haven't seen any of those future events of Revelation take place. But Jesus says, I want you to know what's coming so that you can be ready when it comes so that you can stand in faith and you can stand in confidence. So if if you don't take anything away, take this away. We prepare for the suffering of the future by learning about the faithfulness of Christ today and standing in that. Father, we thank you for your word and for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing of this book, that uh, it, it is not simply about events taking place in a distant future in some mysterious way. It's about today. It it deeply seats us into today. Would you build our faith? Would you build our faithfulness and our obedience? Would you grant us wisdom? Would you knit us together, Lord? Grant us great love for you and great love for one another. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.